Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 14. Today we take a trek through the caves of the Peak District and encounter a creature from the past in Conan Doyle's 1910 short story, The Terror of Blue John Gap. A little gem of a story, it harks back to some of Conan Doyle's earliest work while also giving a taste of stories to come. But more of that anon, here now is Paul with an introduction to the story. While taking a rescue in the Derbyshire Peak District, Dr. James Hardcastle learns of the sinister local legendary surrounding the long-abandoned Roman mine-working known as Blue John Gap. Although sceptical about the tales, despite having heard eerie sounds in the vicinity himself, Hardcastle is seized by the spirit of inquiry and adventure and decides to explore. However, deep within the gap his light gives out, and it seems he is not alone. The Terror of Blue John Gap was written in 1910, in that uh, extremely productive period after Conan Doyle had uh, visited Cornwall, which we described in our episode on The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. And it was several months later that he wrote to his mother and said, It's only four months since I returned from Mullion, and during that short time I have had all the anxiety of the collapse of Temperley, which was his stage play, with the loss one way and the other of nearly £5,000, I've written the whole of The Speckled Band, another play, and by its aid won the £5,000 back again. I've written The Marriage of the Brigadier, The Terror of Blue John Gap, The Blighting of Sharky, and a new Sherlock Holmes story, 10,000 words long. So he was incredibly productive in this period, and he indeed he appears to have been in a very reflective mood. He revisits uh, Sharky and Gerard and Holmes at this time, and they'd all been missing from his repertoire for for many years. Holmes, perhaps only two years, uh, but the previous Gerard was seven years earlier and the previous Sharky was some 13 years earlier. And in many ways, Blue John Gap feels like quite a backward-looking story in that it harks back to that found manuscript approach of some of the Conan Doyle early Gothic stories and very much has a similar feel to Captain of the Polestar. Now, the idea for the story appears to have sprung from his newfound interest in paleontology, which I think we'll come on to in a little bit. And he also at this time had a lot of interest in the ancient world, which would be reflected in a spate of historical short stories over the period 1909 to 1911 that would become the tales of long ago. And so you, you get elements of paleontology and indeed the Romans appearing in the course of this story. And the story was first published in The Strand in August 1910, quite a quick turnaround from delivering the manuscript, and it was accompanied by some rather nice illustrations by Harry Roundtree. We'll put those in the show notes. 
it's interesting talking about the publication history and talking about Conan Doyle's interest in the ancient world at this time, that, that this story, which is essentially mm. a kind of horror monster story, um, first appears in, in, in book publication in The Last Galley, Impressions and Tales, many of which were these uh, ancient uh, historical stories that, that Doyle had put together at this time. Mm. Um, and then it later reappears in 1922 in Tales of Terror and Mystery, which in many ways seems a more fitting place to put it. <laughs> And if you haven't read the story, it's probably a good idea to stop the podcast and read it right now because we are about to thoroughly spoil the ending. Now, as a horror monster story, this tale has many possible influences and inspirations. And we probably want to go back to Conan Doyle's childhood to start with and, and one of his great influences, which is Jules Verne. Yeah, and, and one of the, 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 the real uh, influences on this particular story would seem to be um, Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Uh, which was first published in 1864, in which Verne charts the exploits of uh, Professor Leidenbrock, who finds an ancient manuscript uh, which tells him of where to find an entrance to the centre of the earth um, from from a a volcano in Iceland. Um, So Professor Leidenbrock and a guide and his, his nephew descend into the earth through this, this volcanic opening and have all sorts of, adventures and, and geological discoveries uh, in the in the mm. center of the earth and and it, it isn't only geological discoveries that, that they make uh, during this adventure at one point they find a vast underground sea uh, mm. which is uh, immediately named as the the Leidenbrock sea by the egotistical professor <laughs> and whilst they're on, on on a rather precarious raft crossing this sea they encounter a plesiosaurus and an ichthyosaurus, which almost overturn the raft as they have a battle royal in in the sea. So we 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 are getting Verne uh, writing this this early sort of um, prehist- prehistoric monster story, uh, which will certainly influence uh, Doyle later down the line. And and this uh, the, the the terror of Blue John Gap is is almost his his first go at this sort of thing. And Journey to the Centre of the Earth was phenomenally popular in its day. And another work that could be a possible influence is Edward Bulwer-Lytton's The Coming Race. Yeah, this was first published in 1871, um, anonymously at first. Uh, Bulwer-Lytton, at this point, was was a hugely popular novelist, but most of his his really popular works were were society novels uh, in the same sort of vein as, as Disraeli's novels. Mm. Um, but uh, he he was also very interested in in uh, the occult and, and speculative theories, and the coming race is very much in in this sort of field. Uh, but it it again starts similarly to Journey to the Centre of the Earth. This time you have a um, a gentleman hero who goes into a mine with a, with a friend of his, uh, and they both tumble into a, a an underground world. Um, his friend is is killed in the fall, and and later his his corpse is eaten by a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> but the the novel itself goes on to become a, a speculative novel about the 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 very advanced society that this this mm. Victorian explorer finds uh, beneath the earth. Bulwer Lytton doesn't seem to be particularly interested in in the monsters themselves that are no. that are also in this world. No, that's right. He's mm. much more interested in the society and the culture. Mm. And, and and classically for a novel of that era, it's about 
20 pages of story, 10 at the beginning and 10 at the end, and the rest in between is an enormous exercise in world building. And it's so hugely influential on people like H.G. Wells. Um, and the time machine similarly has an underground civilization. But there are also spiritualist overtones in, in The Coming Race as well. The, the, the Coming Race has a lot of um, themes that would, would interest Conan Doyle throughout throughout his life. There's, there's ideas, it's almost a, a proto-eugenicist novel, uh, but you've mm. also got this this idealistic spiritual world that, that exists beyond the, 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 the world that, that these advanced human beings live in. And the secret of the power of these advanced human beings is that they can control a substance a bit like ether or electricity, which is called vril. And vril became associated in the popular imagination with vitality, so much so that there were exhibitions uh, dedicated to vril-based products, one of which is a liquid beef extract, still popular to this day, which is a combination of bovine and vril, or bovril for short. And you've spotted another possible influence, a very direct influence, in the pages of The Strand itself. Yes, this is a story which is, is enormously similar to Terror of Blue John Gap, um, called The Lizard, uh, which was published in The uh, in the Strand in June 1898 um, and written by C.J. Cutcliffe Hine, who was more famous for his, his naval adventures of, of Captain mm. Kettle, which appeared in Pearson's magazine. But the, the lizard actually is, is set in, um, in the Yorkshire Dales, in uh, Kettlewell, uh, in which a, a Victorian gentleman explorer goes into a cave and, and discovers in there the, uh, the, what he thinks are the fossilised remains of a prehistoric lizard. Um, hmm. And then these fossilized remains turn out to be not quite so fossilized and uh, chase <laughs> him out of the cave. Um, it, it's 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 enormously it is enormously similar to to Terra Blue John Gap, um, even yeah. with it with its kind of uh, northern English setting. It's surely beyond doubt that that Conan Doyle would have will have read this story. Oh, absolutely! I mean, there's even moments with. There's the water running through the cave. There's the striking of the matches. There's the narrator thinking uh, about whether or not he's going to be believed. Um, there's there are enormous similarities in it. I mean, it's um, it's almost a lift, to be mm. perfectly honest. I mean, it's interesting that there was an article in uh, the ACD Journal in the 1990s by Batery and Sargent, and they suggested that uh, Conan Doyle might have been influenced by uh, a story called The Killing of the Mammoth by Henry Tuchman, which appeared in the October 1899 issue of McClure's. Um, and that story features explorers who find a remote cave in Alaska. Uh, at the end of it, they, they discover um, the last surviving mammoth, although somewhat brilliantly, they, they end up killing <laughs> the last surviving mammoth uh, and taking it to the Smithsonian and um, charging um, $5 a time, I think, for, for, for viewing its skeleton. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of this stuff around. There's a story uh, from 1888 in Harper's called A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille, which is uh, another lost uh, recovered manuscript story um, about a man who journeys to a hidden tropical sea in Antarctica and stays with the Kosakin people and encounters pterodactyls. And you have Frank Mackenzie Savile's Beyond the Great South Wall in 1901, where explorers are searching for signs of the lost Mayan civilization and find a huge reptilian uh, carnivore, which is revered as a god by the Mayans. Um, and then this absolutely bonkers story 
uh, French horror and science fiction writer Jules uh, Lamina published L'Effrayante Aventure, which was translated in the UK as, as Panic in Paris, about discovering prehistoric creatures that are frozen in a cavern beneath the streets of Paris, and then they slowly defrost <laughs> and come to life and cause uh, absolute uh, absolute uh, pandemonium. So there's an awful lot of these stories around. It's interesting, so you mentioned the killing of the mammoth, because once more in, in Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Professor Leidenbrock's nephew at one point sees a, a herd of mammoths, living mm. mammoths, uh, under, under the earth, um, and, and they are actually being herded by, by a 10-foot-high early human being. And Leidenbrock's nephew refuses to believe the evidence of his eyes and actually closes off his mind to this as, I haven't seen this, this cannot exist. Mm. Um, so again, the, 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 the author of, of uh, Killing of the Mammoth, possibly influenced there by, by, by Verne. Mm. Um, and, and you also um, mentioned that the more outlandish examples of, of, of this genre, it's quite an outlandish genre to begin with, but <laughs> the, the really outlandish examples. And, and uh, one of the, the most outlandish, um, I, I feel, is, is The Monster of Lake Lemaitre by mm. Warden Alan Curtis, which was published in Pearson's in August 1899. So again, Canon may have read this, but it, it, it involves the, uh, the discovery of, of a, a what the author calls an elasmosaurus, uh, which seems to be some form of plesiosaurus. Uh, and this comes to the surface of a lake. Um, it, it's kind of brought up by a whirlpool. Um, the, um, the narrator attacks it with a machete, um, slices off the top of its head and sees that its brain is the size of a, of a, of a human being. And he, he, he ends up at one point transplanting the brain of one of his friends into the body of the Elasmosaurus. And the, the, the monster comes back to life and wanders around singing songs in Greek. It's, 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 uh, I've read nothing like it. <laughs> this is a great subgenre, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so there's this, 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 general outpouring of, of, of monster stories at this time. Um, and they, they also tie into the, uh, the fin de siècle concerns, which, which are finding their way into a lot of popular literature at this time. We, we've, we've talked in an earlier podcast about the, the, um, the, the future war scenarios, this, this mm. unease with, with, with military developments. Um, and there's, there's also this, this general sense of, of we have reached this point in civilization. Surely something is about to go wrong. Um, mm. and, and one way of, of expressing these fears in fiction is, is through bringing the, these monsters in that, that, are, that are found usually under the earth, which are going to come back into the earth and, and de- destroy us all. Uh, but it, it also ties into the, the, the growing professionalism of, of paleontology um, as, as a scientific uh, discipline. Mm. Um, and Conan Doyle himself was very interested in this, and, and particularly when he began to find uh, his own fossils uh, in the quarry over the road. Mm, indeed. And I think the, that's one of the things that links the people writing these stories in the 1890s, certainly. They're probably the first generation to have grown up with some of Darwin's um, theories as being almost the, 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 the received wisdom of the day. But also there is this massive growth of paleontology as a science, particularly in the last 40 years of the 19th century. Um, you know, this, the science was a relatively new one. It date, dated back only to about 1815, uh, when William Smith demonstrated 
the value of um, fossils in the study of strata. And then you have Georges Cuvier in France, who was um, comparing living creatures to fossils to identify uh, the lines of descent. And it's not until 1842 we get the, the word dinosaur is, is coined. Yeah, and even um, at this point in the mid nineteenth century, as as this this science begins to to, to grow, um, and you mentioned the word dinosaur, which which replaces mm. the earlier word of, of megalosaur or, or megalosaurus, um, and th- this was already starting to enter popular culture, um, and you can see this in in uh, the opening words to uh, Charles Dickens's Bleak House, which was first published in eighteen fifty two. London, Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather, as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Oban Hill. So very much part of the popular consciousness, as you say, and and Cullen Doyle himself was very much interested in paleontology, and that may have gone as far back as his early days in medical practice. Batrian Sargent, in their article in the 1990s, pointed out that the first bone cave uh, systematically explored in England was actually near Plymouth uh, in 1816, and um, it's conceivable that he visited locations there. But it was really around 1909, after Conan Doyle had moved to Crowborough in Sussex, that um, he suddenly found paleontology on his doorstep quite literally in the fact that he found fossilized imprints of iguanodon tracks in a nearby uh, einstone quarry and he called on arthur smith woodward who was a paleontologist from the natural history museum who examined the tracks and he later had uh, casts made of them which were then displayed in his, in his house there are a couple of photographs of of his hall where you can see the um, cast suspended from the ceiling and uh, it was also through, we believe, this connection that he became friendly with Edwin Ray Lancaster, the director of the Natural History Museum, who many people believe was a model for Professor Challenger. In 1905, Lancaster published a book entitled Extinct Animals, uh, which is actually the book that Professor Challenger takes down from the shelf and shows to Malone uh, in The Lost World with the words, This is an excellent monograph by my gifted friend Ray Lancaster which is about the highest praise anybody could get from Professor Challenger, who was not known for handing out <laughs> praise to anybody else. And Conan Doyle was also an investor in Kent Cole, which had unearthed dinosaur remains. So there are lots of things going on at this time that you know Conan Doyle is personally very interested in and, uh, and is, is starting to reflect in his writing. But the monster in The Terror of Blue John Gap is not really a dinosaur. It's an altogether different prehistoric creature. Yeah, there's 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 nothing lizard-like a, a, a about it. And uh, when Hardcastle first sees the creature, he he just gives a, a passing description. He says, "I caught a glimpse of a great shaggy mass, something with rough and bristling hair of a withered grey colour, fading away to white in its lower parts. The huge body supported upon short, thick, curving legs." So we 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 just get this this impression of of this. Uh, the first thing that probably comes to mind is some sort of mammoth-like creature. Um, yeah. And the way he uses, uh, he frequently uses um, elephantine and, and elephant comparisons throughout the story. Yeah, large tracks that even an elephant couldn't make. Um, and then some monstrous inchoate creature. Um, I, I do like the fact that Conan Doyle does that, that 
classic thing that they were always said that you should do with Doctor Who monsters, which is that you only glimpse them very briefly. Mm. You don't you don't shine an enormous torch on them to show all of the all of the stitching and the sellotape. But um, in this case, you do get these very brief glimpses. And uh, uh, when Hardcastle falls in the water and falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he can hear the snuffling of this creature getting closer and closer. There's some genuine menace in this. I mean, the quite amazing thing is that the guy decides to go back and investigate. And there have been other suggestions as to what this monster might be. Uh, Batrian Sergeant looked at the description and and suggested that it might actually be something called the scimitar cat. But Cunandor's description is really very, very clear on this point. It's an enormous cave bear. And Harry Rountree's um, illustration is fantastic of Hardcastle with his torch shining on this enormous bear that sort of eight, ten times his size as it looms over him uh, in in the centre of this cave. Yeah, I mean, the, the only cat-like thing about it is the speed with which it can move and its, it's, its ability to move virtually silently. And there's another feature of the cave bear which is, which is notable. As Hardcastle says, only in one point did he differ from the bear or from any other creature which walks the earth. And even at that supreme moment, a shudder of horror passed over me as I observed that the eyes which glistened in the glow of my lantern were huge projecting bulbs, white and sightless. And that's reminiscent uh, uh, of um, the Morlocks in um, the Time Machine, who are also underground dwellers and fearful of the light. But white's incredibly symbolic in this and indeed in other works. Yeah, the the, the other one where you could think of this is is, um, Bram Stoker's The Lair of the White Worm, uh, Mm. published in, in 1911, the year after. Uh, terror of blue john gap um where the um worm itself is 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 white and and it's it's human avatar uh always dresses in white this this this, this symbolism of of, of this uh, the draining of color um mm. because these creatures live un- underground and, and it's interesting as well that that um conan Doyle makes his his creature uh, bear like and and covered in in shaggy fur um and i i just wonder whether he's doing this possibly to make the comparisons with Cutcliffe Hines the lizard less obvious um because because Hines story it is very much the kind of scaly lizard whereas here we have a a bear like a mammoth like creature which is 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 very different to the the, the creature encountered in the other story and that uh, actually Stoker's novel comes into into Blue John Gap in a couple of ways. Um, one of them is in the location, as we'll probably come on to. But but it, it, the inspiration for Lair of the White Worm is believed to be um, the Wearside Legend of the Lambton Worm, which was immortalised in folk song. And I remember as a child being sung the the, the story of the of the Lambton Worm. But it has some similarities uh, to the Conan Doyle story. It could be another possible inspiration. It's a it's it's the story of a uh, in this case a 14th century uh, worm or lamprey eel. It's an enormous creature that's caught by a knight and thrown down a well where it grows extremely large and poisonous. And and actually it it starts to get out and people realise that something is amiss when livestock start to go missing. Uh, but it's another example of a prehistoric creature that probably was in uh, Conan Doyle's mind. In, in some ways, the Hardcastle can be seen as a sort of modern version of a knight on a quest. Yeah, he is, absolutely. And that ties into all of Conan Doyle's ideas of chivalry as well. 
So we've mentioned there Hardcastle, the narrator of the story, and it's worth spending a little bit of time thinking about him and what he represents. At the beginning of the story, he is uh, on a rest cure in, uh, in Derbyshire, and we've, we've seen that somewhere before, haven't we? Yes, at this, this very time, uh, 1910, earlier in, in the year, Conan Doyle himself is on a rest cure in, in Cornwall, uh, which is where he gets a lot of the inspiration for The Devil's Foot. And in The Devil's Foot, we've got Sherlock Holmes is similarly on a rest cure. And Conan Doyle's obviously playing in his mind with the idea of, of, of characters who are outside their normal daily life wandering mm. into adventures in, in, in different parts of the country. And it's particularly poignant that uh, Hardcastle is wrestling with phthisis or pulmonary tuberculosis, which is the disease that killed Conan Doyle's first wife, Louise, in July 1906. Hardcastle visits Derbyshire because it's of its altitude, which was um, felt to be beneficial. And there are other incidental autobiographical connections to this story. Um, Hardcastle is himself a a medical doctor. He studied medicine at Edinburgh. Um, he mentions Coltbridge, which is a, a district of Edinburgh. Yeah, it's it's interesting as well. With the um, the Coltbridge reference um, comes in in a quote where where Hardcastle is almost saying how he's he, he's the man to go investigating this 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 strange cave because um, he, he talks about an incident in his student days. Uh, when I was a student, I had the reputation of being a man of courage and enterprise. I remember that when there was a ghost hunt at Coltbridge, it was I who sat up in the haunted house. Um, this this could refer back to um, Conan Doyle's own experiences um, with the uh, Society for Psychic Research. He investigated a, a haunted house, or supposedly a haunted house, at uh, Charmouth in Dorset uh, in June 1894 with um, his colleague Frank Podmore. And he does mention ghost hunts in, in other stories as well. Well, in fact, his first um, surviving story uh, is, is a piece called The Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, uh, which he wrote sometime around 1877. Um, and it then sat in the uh, the archive at uh, Blackwoods in Edinburgh for, for decades. And it wasn't actually published until 2000. And there are another couple of really notable ghost hunts, I think, in Conan Doyle stories. There's, um, there's one at the beginning of Rodney Stone, although it transpires that that isn't actually a ghost. And then in The Land of Mist, there is an even better one where it does transpire that it is a ghost. And Lord John Roxton of uh, the Challenger team goes in search of it with an elephant gun. <laughs> As you do. Good old Roxton. <laughs> and then there are two very personal incidental asides in the story. One of them is a very casual mention of Chapel Le Dale, um, the church clock of Chapel Adale chimes in the middle of the Terror of Blue John Gap, but Chapel Adale is actually in Yorkshire, not in uh, Derbyshire. Uh, Conan Doyle was confusing it with Chapel on the Frith in, in Derbyshire. But Chapel Adale is in Ingleton, near Masongill, where um, Conan Doyle's mother moved in her later years to live on the estate of Brian Charles Waller. Uh, which, interestingly enough, isn't far from the location for Cutcliffe Hines the Lizard. Mm, indeed. And, and there's another moment which I think is quite sad, actually, in, in its own way. It's played for, for laughs in the story, but um, the moment where Hardcastle goes to Dr. Mark Johnson to explain what's happened, and Johnson listens very sympathetically and says, oh, you really need to go and see this chap called Picton of Castleton. Except when he gets to Castleton, Hardcastle discovers that Picton is, quote, the best mad doctor in Derbyshire. 
and that uh, Castleton is home to his asylum. And of course, Conan Doyle's father had spent his last few years in and out of uh, asylums. And it's very sad to reflect that this might be something that Conan Doyle is, is drawing on in this in this moment in this story. And there's another way in which this could be seen as quite a personal story in that um, Hardcastle's relationship with science very much reflects where Conan Doyle was in his own thinking at this time. If we go back to this point about paleontology, there's, a, there's an interesting aside here in that uh, Conan Doyle uh, became really interested in the Piltdown Man in 1912, uh, which was discovered only a few miles from his, his home in Crowborough in Sussex. The discovery was meant to be uh, that of the missing link, and it caused immense excitement and divided opinion, um, and ultimately was proven to be a fraud. Cundall actually heard about the Piltdown Man in advance of the public announcement, and he did visit the site frequently. And then in 1983, John Hathaway Winslow, uh, writing in the magazine Science, argued that Conan Doyle was responsible for the Piltdown hoax. And um, there was a fantastic takedown of of the whole argument by Doug Elliott in 1988, who very credibly and robustly debunked the whole idea. For all Winslow's overall theory was nonsense, he did pick on an interesting motive for Conan Doyle um, faking the Piltdown Man, supposedly, and that was uh, a revenge on scientific materialists and uh, scientific orthodoxy. And you can sort of see in The Terror of Blue John Gap that Conan Doyle uh, is reflecting this in the character of Hardcastle and his relationship with science. It starts on a very bitter note with a, a, a letter from Hardcastle to his friend Seaton, essentially berating his friend for not believing in him. And and throughout Blue John Gap, Conan Doyle plays with this idea of the burden of proof. He goes out of his way to make James Hardcastle a reliable witness. And in fact, that name, Hardcastle, conveys the idea that he is this solid, dependable type. Right at the beginning, we are told that those who knew him best are unanimous in asserting that he was a man of a sober and scientific turn of mind, absolutely devoid of imagination, and most unlikely to invent any abnormal series of events. So he starts as this great sceptic, and in fact, when young Armitage comes to him and tells him of some of the incidents that have been happening around the Blue John Gap, he dismisses them very casually, uh, and as she notes, you know, my incredulity annoyed Armitage so that he turned and left me with some abruptness. And then he hears this roar from the caves, and he's still unconvinced. And then he sees tracks inside the cave and has this moment of perverse logic where because he rationalizes that this can't be reality there is no threat (laughs) and so he decides to press on with his investigation you know I determined therefore that I would not be scared by vague and senseless fears from carrying out my exploration so you you get this story throughout that um, Hardcastle is not a believer and this is all about making his ultimate testimony much more credible and palatable to the audience and Conan Doyle is is playing with exactly the same point in other stories around this time. There's The Silver Mirror, published in August 1908, in which um, the narrator is a, a hard-working accountant who starts to see things in a, in a mirror in his room, and I won't reveal what that is, but um, again, the whole idea is that he's the reliable narrator. At one point he says, uh, you know, a sceptic would say, no doubt, that I dropped asleep over my figures and that my experience was a dream. As a matter of fact, I was never more vividly awake in my life. I was able to argue about it even as I looked at it, and to tell myself that it was a subjective impression, a chimera of the nerves, 
begotten by worry and insomnia. So this man's so reliable as a narrator that actually, even when he's seeing things, he's able to rationalize in his head that actually this might not be happening. Uh, but then probably the ultimate reliable witness is, is actually um, Professor Challenger himself. The whole story of the lost world is framed around the burden of scientific proof, and it's because Challenger can't meet the high standards of, of the scientific rationalist that actually he is challenged to go on his own Challenger expedition. And he has the last laugh, ultimately, when he, uh, he unleashes a pterodactyl into the, uh, into the Albert Hall. But all of this is uh, very reflective of Conan Doyle's position on scientific orthodoxy at the time and his, I think, growing frustration that things that don't meet the, the burden of scientific proof are uh, dismissed out of hand. And I think it was that sort of dismissal of things without any care and attention to, to what might be that really concerned um, Conan Doyle. And in fact, the whole story ends on quite a bitter note about not being believed. Hodcastle writes, I leave these facts behind me, and if you can explain them, do so. Or if you choose to doubt them, do so. Neither your belief nor your incredulity can alter them, nor affect one whose task is nearly over. And there's an interesting aside here that Conan Doyle also has uh, a point about um, who believes and who doesn't believe. Uh, at one point he talks about the locals as being uh, uneducated yokels, uh, but he later describes them as um, essentially poor honest folk. And it is actually the poor honest folk of the area who uh, eventually uh, push lots of boulders into the mouth of the Blue John Gap so that uh, the creature that is inside can't escape uh, again. And um, Conan Doyle reflects this in, in other writing, uh, particularly uh, The Land of Mist, where the spiritualists uh, are all portrayed as honest working-class folk who, um, because of the very simplicity of their views and their lives, are, are, are closer to reality or closer to 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 what is actually going on whereas the the educated and the skeptical are regarded rather more cynically in that work and it's 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 really interesting on that point as well that that hardcastle's mentor professor sanderson is very much described as being from the working class in in this this derbyshire peak district area so he's risen from that background to become an eminent professor so it, it, it's showing mm. that, that there is a, a crossover point where where the, the wisdom of both can come together mm. and it's in the same year that conan doyle writes the terror of blue john gap that he gives a speech entitled the romance of medicine in which he explores this tension between uh, science and romance which does filter through into a number of his works as i've described. In the same year, Conan Doyle reflected this in a dinner for the Arctic explorer Peary, and uh, the idea of science progressively filling in the blank spaces of the map and the romance of discovery is being uh, extinguished makes its way into the lost world through um, the dialogue of, of Malone's editor. And in some ways, Blue John Gap is holding on to that romantic notion that there are still fantastical things yet to be discovered, um, as indeed paleontology was was revealing as a relatively new science. Yeah, he, he's uh, in in Blue John Gap. He's making the point even more so uh, in a way than the Lost World because this is happening in Derbyshire rather than South America. It's it's not happening in some remote locale halfway across the world. This is this is a, a local story, and and in this whole idea of, of you know the, the 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 romance of science and so on, this is very much. Um, 
showing uh, Conan Doyle having been brought up on 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 Jules Verne's stories, mm. because Verne was very much into into presenting these stories in a way that they they there is. A, a, a scientific verisimilitude to them. I, you look at something like Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. A lot of that is is almost Verne lecturing uh, about what is to be found uh, under the sea. Um, and the, the, the same with, with with Journey to the Centre of the Earth, where there is much discussion of the geology. Uh, and it's interesting that the the main character in Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Professor Leidenbrock, is another you know, scientific maverick who is mocked by his his academic peers, um, and he goes on to prove that, that he, he is right and, and, and brings back evidence. Um, uh, and it's interesting that, that Conan Doyle in Terror of Blue John Gap, which this side of it is, is certainly modelled on Journey to the Centre of the Earth, um, Hardcastle talks about the, the actual um, geological structure of, of the, um, the, the of the Peak District and uh, says, on each side are the fantastic limestone hills formed of rock so soft that you could break it away with your hands. All this country is hollow. Could you strike it with some gigantic hammer? It would boom like a drum or possibly cave in altogether and expose some huge subterranean sea. A great sea there must surely be, for on all sides the streams run into the mountain itself, never to reappear. Uh, and this clearly shows it, it, it's it's one it's it's Conan Doyle presenting uh, a, a convincing scientific reason for what he finds down there um, because he's arguing that the sea would create a kind of uh, almost a, a, a mini climate in which these prehistoric monsters and flora and fauna of all kinds could um, uh, could thrive. Um, and in Journey to the Centre of the Earth, uh, Leidenbrock and his companions, exactly what they find is um, a, an underground sea, which, as I've said before, Leidenbrock then names after himself. Mm. Um, and again, in this, you can see with the, this, this egotism, he is he's a definite forerunner of, of George Challenger um, in his, his personality. And the Blue John Caves are this kind of magical place where you can uh, imagine this this immense subterranean world. The presence of Blue John gives us a very explicit location. Blue John is a is actually calcium fluoride. It's a mineral uh, of a very beautiful purple color with with bands of white, and it's only found in a handful of places in the in the UK. By far the biggest location is this triangular hill known as Treat Cliff, just outside. Uh, the town of Castleton, which is smack bang in the middle of the Peak District. The veins of uh, Blue John Cavern uh, are, are still mined to this day, although there's, there are obviously diminishing deposits of the mineral. And there is a good reason to believe that Conan Doyle visited these caves. Um, Batry and Sargent, in their article, suggested that he might have visited the area in April 1878 when he was a, a medical student and took up a placement with Dr. Charles Richardson, a doctor in Sheffield. Richardson was an Irishman who'd studied at Edinburgh, and the placement only lasted a few weeks. But they suggest that he might have been Conan Doyle might have been able to uh, to visit um, the caves around that time, uh, or or also the uh, the Sheffield Museum, which had displays on geology and natural history and archaeology. The evidence that we have that Conan Doyle um, visited the caves comes from a quite unusual source, and that is. Uh, his 1921 book, Wanderings of a Spiritualist, about his tour of uh, Australia. Conan Doyle visited the Jenilin Caves near um, Brisbane, 
And uh, in that book, in chapter 11, he writes, uh, The stalactite effects, though very wonderful, are not, I think, superior to those which I have seen in Derbyshire, and the caves have none of that historical glamour which is needed in order to link some large natural object to our own comprehension. I can remember in Derbyshire how my imagination and sympathy were stirred by a Roman lady's brooch, which had been found among the rubble. Either a wild beast or a bandit knew best how it got there. And um, today you can go and visit the Blue John Caves. I went uh, a couple of years ago to see them, and they are very impressive. Um, there's the tour guide's delight in taking visitors to a part called the Devil's Arse, which is a narrow passage, <laughs> supposedly uh, opened up in the 19th century. But when I last posted this fact on Twitter, I got a reply from a, a former tour guide suggesting that um, the guides like to make this stuff up because it pleases the visitors. And that quote from Conan Doyle does highlight this connection to the Romans. Conan Doyle says in the, the Blue John Gap that uh, Blue John was mined by the Romans, but actually there, there isn't very much evidence for that ever being the case. They certainly mined nearby iron mines, um, but uh, it doesn't appear that they uh, had mined uh, Blue John. There's a book called uh, Gem of the Peak by William Adam in 1843, which first made this claim, but people have not been able to substantiate it. But Conan Doyle does a very good job of recreating the, the caves uh, and particularly the surrounding landscape of Derbyshire. If you don't know Derbyshire and the Peak District, um, but you've seen The Princess Bride, you'll get a very good idea of what it's like because they filmed most of that movie uh, around, uh, around uh, the Peak District and around um, the area where uh, Blue John Gap is, is set. And you previously mentioned um, Stoker's The Lair of the White Worm, which is also set in Derbyshire. But though Conan Doyle only has a, a, a short story in which to deal with the setting and the location, and Stoker has a 40-chapter novel, I think um, Conan Doyle manages to give a sense of place much more effectively than, than Stoker manages in his book. Stoker's novel is, is, is all over the place, almost literally. The, the geography <laughs> is, is very, very confusing. Um, you're right, you don't get the sense of, 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 of place at all in, in Lair of the White Worm. <clears throat> it is interesting if, if, if you want to get an idea of, of, of the appearance of, of the area. Ken Russell's 1988 film version of The Lair of the White Worm mm -hmm. does a lot of location work, uh, including the, the wonderful Thor's Cave. Mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't the only one to use uh, the, the Peak District in, in uh, film or TV adaptation. The 1986 Granada version of The Priory School also features an awful lot of, of, of location work in Derbyshire um, and has its climactic scene filmed in, in Peak Cavern, um, which it, it differs from the story, but, but it, it's, it's wonderful to watch to just get a sense of this, this rather eerie cavern. Mm, yeah, that's the story. The short story is set in and around Mackleton, which um, Michael Harrison in his book, In the Footsteps of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Conan Doyle was conflating Matlock and, and Alfreton, um, though Castleton could also be uh, an inspiration. And in fact, um, George Nunes, the publisher of The Strand, was from Matlock in Derbyshire, which is not very far away. And there's another Sherlockian echo in uh, Terror of Blue Dream Gap as well. Um, when Hardcastle first hears the creature um, b before he actually sees it, uh, he says... Suddenly, from the depth of the tunnel beside me, there issued a most extraordinary sound. How shall I describe it? First of all, it seemed to be a great distance away, far down in the bowels of the earth, 
Secondly, in spite of the suggestion of distance, it was very loud. Lastly, it was not a boom nor a crash, such as one would associate with falling water or tumbling rock, but it was a high whine, tremulous and vibrating, almost like the whinnying of a horse. This uh, kind of description uh, of, of, of a, a, an eerie sound is, is very similar to um, the descriptions used in The Hound of the Baskervilles, when the, when the hound is heard across the moor but mm. not seen, and, and when Stapleton tries to insist that it may be the boom of a bittern. And in addition to this, this sound of the creature, the first physical indication we get of its appearance actually comes from a footprint. Very mm. similar again to Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. So I think it's fair to say that we both really enjoy this story. But what really stands out for you, Paul? I think it's, it's very interesting in that we've got this story published in 1910, um, not long after Conan Doyle is beginning to find these fossils uh, over the road from his home, and his mind is is getting very interested in this this whole idea of uh, paleontology, um, and it, it it ties in as you said earlier. It it almost feels like a throwback story in some ways to to his earlier youthful Gothic efforts, um, but it also is pointing the way to The Lost World, which is going to be published in two years' time. And it's almost, it almost like he's, he's playing around with ideas in, in, in this story and, and trying out a, a, a prehistoric monster story before embarking upon a, a, a novel-length work. You know, perhaps he is subconsciously remembering, you know, Cutcliffe's Hines, the lizard, and, and oh, there, there's, a, there's a format I can use. Hmm. Um, and then he's he's ready to uh, to embark on on um, on the lost world, and uh, it, it is again interesting that he's used a, a kind of hairy cave beast in this story, and in the lost world he will really unleash uh, you know, the, the the lizard creatures that he is really interested in. Hmm. I really like the fact that he is experimenting with the idea of legends being real, which comes out in the fact that the Armitage suggests early on about this uh, mystery of the local uh, the local area. And then you suddenly get Hardcastle, this hardened skeptic who gets dropped into the middle of it. And and there, there are moments in the story where suddenly he thinks about his own role in perhaps discovering what is going on here. There's a great quote, I think. Uh, I think of the old world legends of dragons and of other monsters. Were they, perhaps, not such fairy tales as we have thought? Can it be that there is some fact which underlies them? And am I, of all mortals, the one who has chosen to expose it? Which actually is um, somewhat reflected in some of the early statements Conan Doyle says about his spiritualism as well, and the notion about spiritualist campaigners being right on the forefront of uh, another great discovery. But there's also another thing here going on, which is how the terror of Blue John Gap ties into early science fiction. I mean, that notion of legends being real is something that becomes a trope in um, in, in future stories. I mean, most notably in uh, people like Nigel Neal suggesting that there is a scientific basis for the devil in uh, in Quatermass and the Pit. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, another example of Conan Doyle working through lots of different genres, and coming up with each time with, with really exciting, really interesting short stories, and and also uh, the idea of, of of we ignore these these old stories at our own peril. Um, it, it's interesting in, in Terror Blue John Gap, the the local who tells Hardcastle about this this monster later disappears, 
but we never know what find what, what we we never find out what happens to him you know has he been eaten we have no idea mm-hmm. so that brings us to the end of the podcast if you'd like to access the show notes they can be found at doingsofdoyle.com um but what have we got for our listeners next time paul uh, next time we're going to explore one of Conan Doyle's greatest series characters, the heroic Napoleonic Hussar, Brigadier Gerard, and we're going to give you a double helping of, of two back-to-back stories. How the Brigadier held the King and how the King held the Brigadier. Excellent. I'm looking forward to this. So we'll see you next time. In the meantime, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Okay, so where did we come off? So um, I was uh, talking about monsters singing in Greek. Yes, you were, <laughs> as you do. Where did you go uh, from there? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we have to find a segue from that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>